Welcome to Exploring Hydrogen. Here we will learn about all the exciting advancements, opportunities and challenges of this nascent energy sector. We delve into how hydrogen can contribute to the decarbonisation of Australia and the world and investigate what it's going to take for adoption and into transportation, industry and society. I'm Andy Marsland. Welcome to our energising journey. I'm thrilled to welcome our guest today, Ariel L. Boim. Ariel is a senior advisor for GHD working in the future energy market. He has worked extensively on the decarbonisation of infrastructure and renewable energy projects across various sectors, including energy, water and transport. For the past five years, his focus has been dedicated to accelerating the growth of the hydrogen industry in Australia. He plays an active role not only through his project work with GHD with both private and public clients, but also through his engagement with industry, such as his position leading H2Q, Hydrogen Queensland's Policy Advocacy Task Force. He holds a Bachelor in Physics and a Master's in Renewable Energy Engineering. Very warm welcome, Ariel. Thank you very much for having me, Andy. So this episode is going to be slightly different to the previous episodes in that we're going to be discussing and hopefully demystifying economic policy for hydrogen and talking about the five levers. So Ariel, first of all, perhaps you can talk about GHD as an organisation and then your role within GHD and the work that you've been doing with H2Q Hydrogen Queensland. Yeah, absolutely. GHD are a globally recognised professional services and engineering organisation. We have about just over 11,000 employees across five continents and about 120 plus offices. Our kind of base of operations is here in Australia, where I've been working with GHD for the last two years. And they cover work across all sectors, I guess, from energy, power, buildings, infrastructure, architecture, and so forth. I personally am sitting in the advisory space, a sort of advisory and future fuels, future energy space. And in terms of what we look at is we look at anything to do with decarbonisation, climate change and uh, the energy transition. So we're looking at oil and gas decarbonisation, energy security and reliability, energy from waste, bioenergy and I guess particularly relevant to this meeting, hydrogen. And I've been working in this space for about four to five years, previously from London where I worked for Arup. But over the last four years I have been, I guess, Holistically, you say, working to accelerate the growth of the hydrogen industry in Australia. And that's been looking at strategic, tactical, operational projects. And more recently, I've been looking at policy and policy mechanisms and how they can be conducive to the growth of the industry in Australia. Absolutely. And of course, you've been leading the policy advocacy task force for H2Q Hydrogen Queensland. I wasn't lead. I just started leading this year, but I was um, cordially asked to be the the chair so that was quite flattering and what we do is we kind of provide a voice or a conduit between industry and government so we help to translate what industry sentiment is and how that can help inform government policy and we've been doing a, a lot of engagement and report writing over the last year and we've actually just had a white paper released that'll be getting published this christmas so hopefully it's awesome. a lot of hard work that's going in just to give the listeners a bit of an overview of the discussion and how we plan to break this down. So we're going to provide a summary of the five levers and then we're going to uh, dig a bit deeper and talk about the benefits and disadvantages of each and where each lever has been successfully implemented across the world. So examples uh, around the world and what uh, different and other countries are doing. And then we're going to talk a little bit more focusing on the Australian 
market. So yeah, what's currently in place in Australia and then any recommendations for Australia from Ariel and, and through his work and his experience moving forward. So without further ado, perhaps we can talk about the five levers. So what's the first lever, Ariel? So the first lever, which was identified through, I guess, the last year and a half of our research, trying to understand what government and industry sentiment was that had been filtered down to these five levers. The first one is tax and regulation. And this is really what can government do in terms of regulatory standards and requirements in order to influence proponent behavior and what kind of tax levers can they use to influence taxpayers' behavior. And tax is an important one because... We see this as either compensating the victims of the externality, which is the emission of carbons. So regulatory standards and requirements that the government can implement to influence behavior or what kind of tax incentives or penalties can the government implement to also influence behavior. There are a number of pros and cons to each of these levers for tax and regulation. One of the pros is that it can be targeted to achieve specific decarbonization targets for certain sectors or certain technologies and so forth. Um, And it can create a very attractive investment environment. So you can actually invite a lot of people into the marketplace by creating what is really just a simple change to the rules, although it's never that simple. For example, carbon pricing, you know, is a typical one that gets a lot of flack in Australia. Yes, yeah. And um, putting a price on carbon is quite tricky because everyone has an opinion. Everyone has something to gain and something to lose in it, so they all have, I guess, an input. Yeah, just while we're on that topic then, um, can you talk about where carbon prices has been implemented around the world and what specific price has been in those countries? Probably the most prominent example of carbon price is the EU emissions trading scheme, which essentially set up a framework for carbon to be traded at a certain price throughout the EU. I think the last time I looked at it, it was sitting around the 70 to 80 euro per tonne mark. And that's quite significant if you compare that to somewhere like Australia, where we have the um, safeguard mechanism, which is essentially our equivalent of doing that. Organizations that emit over 100,000 tons per year of CO2, I believe it is, then get penalized with this carbon tax. But they can buy offsets, which essentially puts their money back into the system and funds you know, decarbonization projects. So that's kind of how the whole thing works. But the safeguard mechanism is by nowhere as complex or as widespread as uh, the European ETS emissions trading scheme. Yeah, perhaps we can talk about that in some more detail as we go on through the conversation, dig into that safeguard mechanism a little bit more. Yeah, so so the safeguard mechanism is essentially a legislative framework to limit the emissions of large industrial facilities. Um, Organizations, as I said, that exceed their baseline net emissions are taxed for every tonne that they go over. Um, And it applies in Australia to I think it's around about 500 different facilities and targets their scope one emissions for anything over 100,000 tonnes per annum. And as I said, they can purchase Australian carbon credit units, ACCUs, if they exceed their baseline. And this is kind of an offset if they know they're going to go over that limit. So another good example of where regulations have been essentially modified to encourage the growth of hydrogen is in the EU with the EU recast gas regulations. And what they did is they changed the regulations to allow for discounts of up to 75% for hydrogen projects looking to connect to the network. So, uh, as you know, Europe has you know, a sufficient or a very comprehensive gas network already, and they don't really want to make that a stranded asset. So they're trying to repurpose it, and this regulation is trying to encourage the adoption of hydrogen into that network. It also allows for harmonization of... so. 
blending gases and gas quality and cross-border interfaces are all considered in this regulation, uh, allowing more participants to enter the network, making more accessible. Yes, yep. that's great. Anything else on lever number one? That's about it. Okay, lever number two, which is uh, tax credits and subsidies. Yes, and not to be uh, confused with the tax that we previously talked about, which is a tax on your commodity. Tax credits and subsidies are an incentive-based policy instrument that provides market-compatible forms of direct government intervention. So this is ways the government can directly influence certain projects, certain sectors, and so forth. And the purpose of tax credits and subsidies is really to overcome fiscal barriers and allow projects to become sustainably operational. So you don't introduce them at the beginning of a project development. You introduce them once the project is up and running or you know, in anticipation of the project being up and running so that the project can essentially learn to walk you know, without any support inevitably. So this is on a, on a project by project basis that this would be implemented? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it all depends on what the tax credit or subsidy is aimed at. So an example, the most famous one that everyone's talking about at the moment is the US Inflation Reduction Act, which offers a tax credit of up to $3 per kilogram of hydrogen produced. That $3 per kilogram is based on the carbon intensity of the product. So if you have a very clean hydrogen product, I can't remember what the specific numbers are, but then you're eligible for the whole $3. If perhaps you're doing a blue hydrogen project and it's, it's got a higher carbon intensity, then you'll get maybe $1 per kilogram. I mean, yeah, that's been uh, getting a lot of press, a lot of media over the last sort of, uh, well, since it's been introduced. I think the concern in Australia is, I think it worked out in the trillions of dollars that's going to equate to for the US. And what can Australia do in comparison? Appreciate we don't have that sort of uh, money to throw out this challenge ahead of us, but um, certainly a, a big one that has been attracting a lot of attention. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think that's what you just touched on there is one of the specific drivers behind our work is we don't have pockets as deep as the US. So we need to be a bit smarter with the money that we have got. And that's kind of driving a lot of the what innovative policy mechanisms can we come up with. And I guess Australia does have some good subsidy. They don't have any production tax credit mechanisms, but they do have good subsidies. So you can actually receive subsidies if you're looking to buy an electric vehicle or a hydrogen vehicle. It's a small percentage of the total cost of the vehicle, but given it's such a small industry so far and such a small market, uh, you can't imagine it to be much bigger. And Australia do also have the research and development tax credit and which is one of the key pillars driving innovation in Australia, which is really important at this early stage in the industry. And that essentially provides a tax offset, so reduces your liable tax by anywhere from up to 18 to 44% of your investment based on how successful the assessor thinks the project's going to be, how much revenue is being forecast, and so forth. Yeah, and on to the third lever then, which is uh, market-based schemes. Yeah, so market-based schemes are interesting because they're an amalgamation, essentially, of different mechanisms. And they usually consist of a pull mechanism, so a mechanism or a lever that tries to pull investment into the market, and a push mechanism, so it's one that pushes proponents to do something. So a good example of a market-based scheme in Australia is the Australian Renewable Energy Targets. And this is introduced in 2001, and it assists in the decarbonisation of the economy by increasing the supply of renewable electricity also displacing electricity from the fossil fuel producers. Now, electricity retailers and large electricity buyers were legally required 
to source some of their energy or power requirements from green sources. So this creates an obligated party. So, And what that meant is that created a hole now for producers to go in and start producing renewable energy. So you've got you've created both sides of the market by introducing this target. And essentially the producers would then create certificates that then could then be bought by the energy users and that created this market scheme. And now since you've got a renewable energy target and a green certificate market. So that's one, I guess, example of these market-based schemes in Australia. Yeah, great. The next lever is contracts for difference. Yes, contracts for difference. And this is probably my favorite lever and it's getting a lot of attention across the world at the minute, especially in the hydrogen space. Now, CFDs, Contracts for Differences, are a financial contract between supplier and a purchaser of energy provided a certain price. Now, the Contract for Difference stipulates that the purchaser will pay the seller the difference between the market value at the time of contracting. So essentially, a market price is agreed. We usually call this the strike price, and this is based on a number of factors. It could be the level of CO2 emissions that are being abated. It could be the cost of the fossil fuel plus a green premium, whatever the market decides is a strike price, but everyone agrees that's the baseline. And if the supplier is able to provide energy at a higher cost, then they are refunded the difference, so bringing their cost down to the market price. And if they produce energy at a lower price, they have to pay back the difference. So you always bring the cost for the supplier and the price for the user to the strike price. And the important thing about that is it creates a lot of certainty in the market because it knows that whatever the value and whatever you're producing, you're always going to come to a kind of an average. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what that does is that moves the risk from the industry onto the government, partially because the government is now liable to subsidize mm -hmm. if things improve. If things continue to improve rapidly, you're thinking as a supplier, this is great. I'm going to get all these subsidies because I'm producing at such a cheap rate. Then the government or whoever the body is will come in and reduce the strike price and reassess the whole thing. So depending on what that, I guess, reassessment period is, you can essentially and hopefully bring down the price, the sort of total price for everyone over time. And typically, what would the duration be for one of these contracts or, you know, what when's the review or how frequently are the review periods? So in order that suppliers can't take full advantage of subsidy and just keep getting making massive profit for years to come, I think contracts for difference usually last for about 10, 12, 15 years. And by that point, the market will have readjusted to you know, an equilibrium mm -hmm. and then you reassess it, hopefully reduce the strike price. Producers are now have made economies of scale. There's been improvements in technologies, been lowering capex and opex costs, so their costs have come down, and the strike price has come down because the market is a bit more mature now. That's the theory behind it. Mm -hmm. It's worked very well in the Netherlands with the Sustainable Energy Production Scheme. A form of it is currently being rolled out in the UK with the hydrogen business model, which they are rolling out, which is essentially an auction-style allocation of subsidies. They have contracts offered over 15 years, which they call a stabilization period. Hopefully results in reduced developer costs, as we just mentioned. The biggest one of these CFDs is the H2 Global Scheme, which has been introduced in Germany and the EU. 
And this is a power to hydrogen, power to renewable, whatever it might be, auction-based contracts for difference mechanism. And it subsidizes the difference between the supply and demand prices, as I mentioned. But the interesting bit about this is it's kind of a matchmaking mechanism because what it does is it says, okay, everyone who wants to supply, let's say hydrogen, for example, gives you costs. Everyone who wants to buy hydrogen, tell us what you're willing to pay. And then what the HG Global Scheme does is it match makes you know, the, the lowest cost with the highest price. And what you're essentially doing there is minimizing the difference between the cost and the willingness to pay price. And that small gap is then subsidized by the intermediary body. I think this run out of Germany. And what they're doing there is essentially optimizing the subsidies because they're filling the smallest subsidized gaps every time. Oh, got you. Yes, yep. And it's just worth noting, the reason I like this contract for difference so much is because the biggest issue in the hydrogen space at the minute, and the reason projects aren't getting past FID or 2FID, is because the premium on hydrogen just isn't suitable at the moment. Mm. So you're not able to guarantee a revenue. Guarantee a revenue stream is probably the biggest killer to projects, from my understanding. What this does is essentially creates that certainty of what the revenue stream will be, and then invites you know debt financing and equity financing, all those big pots of money you know in the floating about in the ether esoterically. Apparently, it invites them to the party because they just want to see a certainty in investment mm. and the certainty in return. Do you have any examples where this has worked in Australia? Maybe not specifically in the hydrogen sector, but you know, has it worked well in say the solar industry as that was emerging several years ago? I can't speak to Australia specifically. Uh, I don't think there has been a, a properly rolled out contract for difference framework at all. However, we are moving in the right direction because the Hydrogen Head Start project, one of the options I think after, before they went out to consultation was to build that around a contract for difference framework to move some of the risk onto government away from industry and to help optimize what that specialization might be. If you probably heard Chris Bowen's announcement recently about the capacity uh, investment scheme, mm-hmm. and essentially what that, that that's that's contracts for difference that provides a price floor and a price cap, and says that we will underwrite projects with a production credit within these boundaries, and if it goes below, then we'll subsidise you, and if it goes above, then you'll pay back or the other way around. <laughs> but you, you get the drift. You get the drift. So. Uh, contracts for difference are taking off in Australia. I think the value of them is being realized and being implemented. It's just a bit more complex than creating a target. So I can understand the government's apprehension and need to kind of do their research before they deploy this mechanism that's going to invite billions of dollars into the market. Yes, yep. And finally, number five, lever number five, financing arrangements. Yes, so these are probably the most basic and and well-recognized of the levers we've talked about today. And this is definitely what Australia has been pursuing over the last three or four years in terms of getting the hydrogen industry up and running. And essentially, finance is just provided as a means to mitigate the inherent risk in developing new projects, new industries, creating new sectors. That's all it does. I guess the interesting thing about finance is it's very flexible. You can provide grants, as Australia has been doing, you know, to all different sectors across different periods, and so forth. You can provide debt finance, which is essentially when other people, other private investors come in and invest money and they expect a return 
on their investment with some sort of interest rate added to the top. And then you can have equity finance where a private investor will come in and buy a portion of the, the investment. So they've now got skin in the game. Yes. And I think the good thing about the finance mechanism is, as I said, they're flexible. You can stage them over different periods of time depending on what you want the outcome to be. You can kind of tailor them very easily to suit your needs and outcomes. And certain finance mechanisms will be more appropriate for different industries, for different technologies, whatever that may be. So an example would be if you're trying to produce green steel or green iron, a grant from the government is probably not going to be able to help you to retrofit your steel manufacturing supply chain. That's going to require tens of billions of dollars. So in that instance, you'd really need debt financing or equity financing and so forth. However, if you're wanting to set up a small pilot hydrogen, you know, in Gladstone, in WA, in Equinon or wherever, then a, a government grant loan will work. So yeah, you just have to think about where you want to throw this money, when and how you want to throw it and so forth. It seems like some of the concerns about Australia's approach so far has been the government trying to pick winners, essentially. Is that what people are talking about regarding the backing specific projects? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and there's a difference between picking winners and making strategically good choices. Um, the example is, you know, the obvious one is, we're not going to see a hydrogen passenger vehicle industry market in Australia anytime soon because the progress that EVs are making is just staggering. However, if you look at large industries that are hard to abate, like I mentioned steel and iron and alumina, etc., they are clear um, good strategic options for hydrogen to be implemented. Um, and I think three or four years ago, back in 2019, you know, when Alan Finkel was talking about exporting sunshine, you know, there was this hype around hydrogen. I hate that term, but it's quite fitting. And we thought we, proverbially, Australia, thought we've got these great resources. We're going to export all this hydrogen and it's going to be great. And then there's been a realization and more study has been done and research and projects have developed and then failed and developed and failed and some have developed and moving to quite on to be, I guess, quite successful. They've kind of narrowed down on what the options or the good choices for Australia would be. And the Grattan Institute just recently released a report quite timely, you know, fortuitously for us talking about exactly that, you know, what industries we should focus on and, and the policy should be targeted at specifically I don't want to say it, but picking those winners because they're clearly not winners, mm. they're no-brainers. Yeah, so just to recap then, so the five levers, uh, number one, tax and regulation, number two, tax credits and subsidies, number three, market-based schemes, number four, contracts for difference, and number five, financing arrangements. Uh, we've spoken about a couple of examples where these policies have been implemented well across the globe. Any kind of disadvantages of using each of these mechanisms or any examples of where they've not been rolled out successfully and some of the learnings of those? Yes, oh, definitely. I think the one we touched on in the very beginning, the emissions trading scheme in Europe. Now, everyone thinks that a carbon, high carbon price is a silver bullet to decarbonization, increasing renewables and so forth. But when you have a carbon price and you're taxing, you know, these Goliath companies and resource companies and oil and petrol and, and natural gas, 
the bottom line is they need to make a profit. So they're going to find ways around this. And that leads to what you call carbon leakage, which is where essentially a company in Australia, a resource company, will offshore its facilities to a country that doesn't have a carbon tax. And they'll just operate from there, and that's called carbon leakage. Now, this happened, or was beginning to happen in the EU quite a bit uh, in the early days of the ETS. So what they've done is, and it's still being rolled out, trial and tested around the globe, they've introduced the, the CBAM, or the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. And that means that commodities or resources that are coming in from internationally or outside the EU may be subject to an additional carbon tax, essentially if they've been produced in a, a not environmentally friendly way. So it kind of puts a, a plug on the whole carbon leakage thing. Yes. But um, at the same time, that has knock-on effects. Countries where they've offshored to or then either have to update their carbon policies to reflect the pricing in the, the destination country. Or it might even just price or push countries out of trading with the EU because they can't. A lot of these places are probably developing countries. They don't have the capability and so forth to have a complex emissions trading scheme and carbon price. So it comes with a lot of complexities. And that's a really good example of how you get these knock-on effects of just introducing something as simple as a carbon tax and what that can lead to. Do you think we'll ever get to the stage where scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions are going to be monitored and, and for any country? I believe so. If we look at one of the actions of the National Hydrogen Strategy was to create a guarantee of origin scheme, mm-hmm. which essentially was as difficult to say that your hydrogen that you've produced is has this carbon intensity. And that essentially is going to accompany every kilogram of hydrogen in the future that is produced in Australia. So that indicates that the carbon emissions will be monitored very closely. And I know from working on a number of projects that big organizations are looking at ways to decarbonize and to tackle the scope one, two, and three emissions. So now we've gone into each of those in some detail. What's your recommendations? Perhaps if we can look at firstly Queensland and then Australia, and if there's any kind of difference in your recommendations from state to state. So looking at Queensland particularly, you know, the state relevance, the state I live in, I think Queensland, as with every other state, has its own natural advantages. Several of the key advantages is that there are a lot of large ports. You know, we already have very good trade relations with the Asian countries. And there's a, a very well-established liquid natural gas. You know, we provide to Japan, we provide to we have good relationships with Taiwan and so forth. So because those trade relationships already exist, you will have seen like, in the last couple of years there's been a lot of interest. A lot of the hydrogen growth has been driven by these international companies. And whilst technically and feasibly it still might be, you know, maybe five, ten years, fifteen years away, I think an export industry based on an already established export import relationship is definitely a way to go. Mm-hmm. Australia doesn't have that much to decarbonize in the grand global scheme. So I think one of the key things to look for would be that economic prosperity, and that really lies in the export opportunity. At the same time, what are we exporting? Is it the best idea to just make hydrogen and export that? Sell sunshine, as Adam Finkel said? I wouldn't say that would be my first choice. I think it's uh, much more prudent to decarbonize the commodities, the minerals, the resources that we already provide to the rest of the world and ship them at a higher premium because I believe that the, the markup 
on hydrogen per kilogram is not nearly as large as the markup will be on, you know, a kilogram of alumina or whatever sort of, you know, rare earth mineral we're, we're exporting. Mm-hmm. So that's Queensland. For the wider Australia context, I think a lot of the focus has been rightly so on West Australia uh, for the last three or four years. They're kind of leading the charge in a, in a lot of aspects of this industry. They have all the iron ore, you know, and that's readily been identified as one of the winners, you know, the horses to back. So, and the Minerals Council West Australia released a report earlier this year, I think it was, determining, you know, just how far down the green steel supply chain would they go? Would they just decarbonize the iron ore and ship that? Would they just decarbonize, would they create an iron manufacturing industry and then decarbonize that? Or would we go all the way to the steel industry and then ship the the green steel? Mm-hmm. And again, each of those has a markup. So any one of those opportunities exists for West Australia. And if the market for green steel and green iron is going to be as big as people say it is, and if you look at the, I guess, the billions of tons that China are producing of green steel nowadays, which is all massively dependent on Australian iron ore, it will be a big industry and the opportunity is there for Australia to lose. Um, I just hope that Queensland can get a bit of that iron pie <laughs> <laughs> as well. Oh, I might have to move to the Republic of West Australia. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what are some of the policies then that would underpin that or support that focus? If we focus on the green steel opportunity, and, and green, I think alumina is the other option. That's on the East Coast, I think down in New South Wales. As I mentioned before, grants aren't going to cut it. When you look at the premium on top of the existing Costa ship iron or ship ore, if you look at the premium, I think the majority of that is based on a number of things. The hydrogen, which is ultimately determined by the price of electricity. And the other aspect is the market price. So what people are willing to pay for hydrogen. Again, it's just trying to get those two numbers as close to each other as possible. So tackling the first one, you kind of have to put some regulations in or some sort of concessions for access to power. Power price in Australia is currently anywhere from like 60 to 120 dollars per megawatt. Don't quote me on that. That's just rough kind of ballpark figures. And projects just not going to get off the ground. You're not going to get a hydrogen project with a hydrogen levelized cost low enough to um, justify building an iron manufacturing facility or green steel facility currently. So you really have to put something in place to reduce that. New South Wales have done something, a small step towards that, which is the 90% concession to connections. It's just a small drop in the pond, but it's a step in the right direction. So yeah, bringing down that power price is one of the, I guess, key things from the producer side, you know, reducing cost. Um, and if you want to come from the other side, which is that willingness to pay, you know, bringing the price down, production tax credits, contracts for difference. Yep. We're starting to see that. Mm. Time will tell how successful it is. But that's probably the most palatable option from a government and industry perspective because it shares the risk mm. and it encourages innovation to reduce costs and reduce market price and everything. Just a good race to the bottom. <laughs> Do you think the policies that Australia's got in place now are sufficient? And is there anything that you'd kind of add in or even take away that from what has been recently implemented? 
I think that Australia has taken baby steps in the right direction over the last three or four years. It's a bit sad because at the you know three or four years ago, when I first got to Australia, it was like a, a gold rush, and the hype was so big, and Australia were leading the charge. And then the influx of capital from the likes of the US into their hydrogen economy, and from the EU, you know, the repowering EU, kind of pulled away from Australia. Australia got left in the dust because they weren't investing enough money. I think Australia has announced a total of about 35 billion total has been announced to support hydrogen. And if you compare that to globally, which is about 350 billion, I think it's less than 10%, you know, is Australia's investment globally. And that's what it comes down to at the end of the day, the money. So I don't think they've done enough. If they had done, we probably would have seen more projects getting over the line. The government recently, they released a paper, the State of Hydrogen Industry report earlier this year. And it kind of talks about, you know, where we have excelled and where we haven't. And it doesn't paint a terrible picture. We're not doing a terrible job. But it's definitely not as progressive and advanced as other places in the world. I'm not going to say too much about China, but they're like steaming ahead as usual. Yeah, Australia does have a, have a bit of catching up to do. And that's why we're at such a pivotal moment. Yeah, we touched upon it before, but I think it's worth us perhaps digging into in a bit more detail the uh, Hydrogen Head Start program. So yeah, what exactly is it? And then where is the, the money intending to be uh, spent on? Yeah, the, the Hydrogen Head Start is essentially a $2 billion fund. And it's a government fund to underwrite project operational costs by providing a production credit for every kilogram of hydrogen produced. I think it's only going to go to about one or two projects once they're successfully identified. Is it mostly focused on the GOCs, the government-owned corporations then, or is it open to private sector as well? No, no, it's not. And that's an important thing to mention because in Queensland, we have the, I think it's the Hydrogen Jobs, Energy and Jobs Fund. And, and that was, sits at 4.5 billion. So that's twice as much as the Hydrogen Head Start, which is you know this great kind of progressive move. But only about 50... 500 million or 50 million, like a small fraction of the Energy Job Plan Fund has actually been tapped into because it has to be applied to, there has to be a GOC, a government-owned corporation involved in that project. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of hindered the access to all that money that we apparently have. The Hydrogen Head Start is open to any projects. They just have to demonstrate, I think it's over 50 megawatt production capacity. And I believe it has to be pretty much green. I don't think there's any blue room for blue in there. And I can't tell you exactly what the per kilogram subsidy will be. That will probably be agreed when they look to the market and try and you know, find out what that strike price is, what the cost of the project are at the end of the day. That will all be agreed. But again, it's based on that contracts for difference framework where you have a floor and a cap price. And if you go above, then you pay back. And if you go under, then you get subsidized. Providing that market certainty. Yeah, yeah absolutely. What are your personal hopes and dreams then for the sector? I hope it continues to grow because I enjoy working in it. <laughs> um, and I like my job and it's it's very fluid and organic and, and something's always happening. And that's one of the challenges. I, I'm by no means a policy expert. I don't claim to be. I'm a policy enthusiast. And that enthusiasm has, has grown through my own sort of voluntary research and understanding and speaking to industry and trying to really understand how policy impacts the growth and development of the industry and the innovative kind of ways that you can tweak policy to achieve nuanced goals. 
were my hopes and dreams and wishes. I would like to see some projects go into the operational phase. I think that's what everyone's waiting for. People don't realize how hard it is to get to financial investment decisions, like the work that takes to get there. And given the market conditions, how hard it is to come out with a levelized cost or an MPV or an IRR that is palatable for investors. So I would like to see some projects get to FID and then go into construction and commissioning because that opens a whole new raft of issues and challenges and problems that we'll get to address. But more importantly, we'll get to see how the policy, does it put its money where its mouth is? Does it actually work? Or are there challenges around the corner that are going to mean we have to rethink the policy landscape completely? Any asks of the audience? As I mentioned, I'm not a policy, I don't claim to be a policy expert, I'm an enthusiast. And I would ask the audience or those listening, if they're interested in it, to do more reading and research in it. And read things like the Grattan, the Hydrogen Hype, Hope or Hard Work Report. You know, it's a fantastic report just recently written by them. And it really brings you up to speed where hydrogen is in Australia. Um, Climate Energy Finance are another group that I am involved with. And they recently released a paper on Australia's response to the IRA, which is a really good read and gives you a good understanding of how Australia can sort of compete with these other huge global powers in the hydrogen industry. And just educate yourself. That'd be the most important thing. The industry is moving so quickly. I read every day and I still struggle to keep up with all the pushing and pulling and twos and throws that happen in this industry. And that makes it an exciting place to work. It's got that level of unpredictability that always make it kind of interesting. I know that sounds cheesy, but... That's great. And we'll get links to those um, the resources uh, in the show notes as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Ariel. Is there anything that we've not spoken about? Anything else that you, you think the audience would be interested in? I can only give it from my perspective. My perspective is working with GHD. You know, we do a lot of work in the project delivery space and that if people want to understand a bit more about the hydro industry and I guess the you know rural industry that it's attached to and all the infrastructure it's attached to I'd recommend just having a little search for GHD on LinkedIn you know there's always interesting posts like our recent shot campaign that we released or our articles and interviews we've been undertaking at the COP in the Arab Emirates so I'm just one enthusiasts in a pool of 11 over 11,000 enthusiasts and they're always talking and releasing stuff so yeah have a have a little plug of GHD on LinkedIn or Google and that'll probably pique your interest and educate you a bit more fantastic uh, I think we'll leave it there I hope uh, well I'm sure the listeners will have got a lot from that discussion and yeah thanks to you for your ongoing hard work uh, with uh, H2Q and Hydrogen Queensland and I'm sure we'll get some really positive feedback from the episode so thanks again no thank you Andy I'm Andy Marsland. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for joining us on the Hydrogen Journey. We welcome you to join us at our next episode. Please remember to subscribe and review the show and hope to see you next time. Mm-hmm.